God, you are the great God. You are the God over all the universe. The God who created the stars, the planets, created us. God, in the stillness of this worship moment, we are very aware of you. And as we sung these words, God, the picture of you dancing over us and the picture of you singing over us in a God way. God, we thank you for that. We thank you that we are your children. And we worship you this morning. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. In the words of one of my mentors, I'm glad I came to church today. It's a powerful new song, isn't it? Lord, I'm amazed. I'm amazed. I don't take enough time to be amazed by God. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we've started a a discussion on the uh, topic of disciplines or spiritual practices, things that you and I do to keep ourselves centered and focused on what is most important, and that is our connection with God. You'll know that last week we started with Pastor Chris talking about the, the practice or the discipline of stillness, of being silent before God creating those moments and those spaces in our life where we can hear God speak clearly to our hearts and our souls. And so I want to ask you, how's that been for you this week? How's it been? Were you able to take some time, a few moments, a few minutes, maybe longer, and just be still with God? Um, I, uh, I remember... Um, one time where I decided to shut off the iPod and close the laptop and turn off my computer and, and, uh, um, and, and go for a hike up in the mountains. Um, and as I was hiking, I just finished reading, uh, not, not, not too long ago, a book by Henry Nouwen. Uh, hopefully you've read some of this stuff. A beautiful author on the, the um, spiritual practices. And uh, he wrote a book called Life of the Beloved. Um, Powerful book, and and I was on my hike and just just absorbing the scenery. Um, no great revelations, no audible voices, but an awareness that I sometimes, I oftentimes don't have an awareness of God saying to me, speaking to me, "You are my beloved. You are my beloved." And that was the only thing I heard during that whole walk. But I don't know about you. I need that. I need that. I need those moments that reminds me who I am and what I'm all about. So I want to encourage you. Um, keep at it. It is a practice. It's, it is a discipline sometimes. In the, in the crazy, busy world that we live in, in the world that's obsessed with noise and busyness and, and accomplishments, taking time 
where um, it's successful if you don't accomplish anything is, is, uh, goes against the grain. And, uh, and yet that's what we need the most. We're moving today to another spiritual practice. And I invite you, as we do, to turn to the book of Judges. Book of Judges. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, there's Bibles in, in front of you in the pews there. You'll see a number up there. That's the page number in the, in the Bibles from the pew. Um, if you've brought your own Bible, please don't use that number. You'll be in Psalms somewhere. Um, but uh, the book of Judges and the 15th chapter. 15th chapter and starting the very first verse. Later on, at the time of harvest, the time of a wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. Gentlemen, take note. <laughs> Bring a goat. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, and literally translated, that means, giddy up, let's go. Go to my wife's room. But her father would not let him go in. I imagine maybe because he had a goat. But he said this, his father says this, I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. He digs the hole a little deeper. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 pairs, 300 foxes, something you and I would do. He lit the, lit the, where do you get 300 foxes? I, these Englishmen have a hard time on all their horses finding one fox and their hounds to boot. How do you find, uh, took 300 foxes, tied their tail, tied them tail to tail in pairs. And uh, there's places on the internet that will teach you how to do that. He lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. Now I want you to get that scene for a second and realize the impact of what has happened. What is happening here? Burning up the grain, the vineyards, the olive groves. This is how these people fed themselves. This is their livelihood. This is their economy. He was destroying a major part of what made their society run and function. When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told, Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, Since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Edom. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. I merely did to them what they've done to me. Fascinating story, isn't it? It's not something we often tell our children. It's a fascinating... Do you notice any patterns, any cycles happening here in this narrative, in this story? 
any ways of being that people get themselves into. Uh, uh, a favorite uh, teacher, preacher of mine, Rob Bell, um, makes a few observations about this passage that I want to share with you. First thing he says is that the people in the narrative, in the story here, seem to be caught up in a vilification or demonization of each other. Do you notice what Samson said there um, after, after they, uh, they killed his, his in-laws, his, his, the family? Samson said this, verse 7, Since you've acted like this, like my hands are clean in the deal, like I was, I, what I did was justified, but what you've done, there is no reason for what you've done. There is no excuse for that. There is this pattern of I am good, you are evil, I am all justified in my actions. You have absolutely no justification in what you do. And there's this pattern that the cycle builds upon. Hopefully, you'll take an opportunity when you leave today to pick up a book outside, The Anatomy of Peace. Pastor Chris mentioned it during the announcements. There's a, there's a beautiful chapter in there, and the whole book is built on the idea of, of, um, of how to live peacefully and practical ways um, and ideas how to do that with each other. And uh, there's, there's, a, there's a powerful chapter in there on this idea of, of the, this way that we start to look at people and um, uh, put them in certain categories. So there's this that's happening in the story. The second thing that, that we notice happening in the story is that there's an escalation happening. Do you catch that? There's a building of events and tensions and, and events, uh, uh, destructiveness in this story that is kind of amazing to sit back and watch happen. There's an escalation. It starts out with this love triangle, weird thing with a father-in-law and uh, giving to a best friend. And, and then it moves from that to uh, burning up uh, economy. Um, and then it moves to burning up of a family. And then it escalates to, um, uh, to killing, slaughtering uh, many men. And then it ends up 3,000 men are, are here at the cave entrance saying, Samson, what have you done? What have you done? There's this escalation that happens uh, in this cycle, in this pattern that we see. It goes from bad to worse. The third thing that we notice in this um, narrative, the third thing is that it's kind of just the way it is. It is what it is. It's kind of a normal way of being. You notice nobody sits down with Samson as he's tying the tails of the foxes together and says, Samson, hang on a second. Do you really think that's going to accomplish what you want to do? <laughs> Letting these foxes run. Is that, is that really going to help make matters better? Nobody sits down with these guys who burn the family and say, hang, hang on a second, Hank. You don't fight fire with fire. Hang on, is that really going to accomplish what you want to accomplish? Nobody sits down and stops Samson and says, Samson, I know they did this, but uh, come on now. You don't have to go out and slaughter these people. It's just kind of the way it works. You do wrong to me. I do wrong, wronger. A little more wrong to you. There's an escalation that's it's a natural way of life. There's a, there's a brilliant theologian um, by the name of Walter Wink, written some books and a few articles. He has this idea that he talks about called the myth of redemptive violence. 
don't know if you've heard about it, but it, it, um, there's a paragraph here from him. Um, he says, The myth of redemptive violence is the real myth of the modern world. It, and not Judaism or Christianity or Islam, is the dominant religion of our society today. In short, the myth of redemptive violence <clears throat> is the story of the victory of order over chaos by means of violence. It is the ideology of conquest, the original religion of the status quo. And he builds this idea off of the, the ancient Babylonian myth of the creation of the world, that people have bought into this, whether they realize it or not. This is the driving uh, force for the majority of society. This myth that there were gods, and there was a good god and an evil god, and the good god overcame the evil god by destroying her, and in destroying her, um, used the remnants of her being to create the world. So we are created out of blood, is how the idea goes, and how violence is inborn into society and into the fabric of, of humanity. The idea that good overcomes evil through violence. That's kind of the pattern that the world works on. It's into these patterns and these systems that Jesus steps in. And he steps into the world with a different way of being, a different way of thinking. I'm going to read through a couple of texts here pretty quickly, texts that you're very, very aware of. Texts that demonstrate a different way of teaching, a different way of thinking about the world. Matthew 5, these texts are taken from Matthew 5 through 7. Blessed are the merciful, says Jesus, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons and daughters of God. You have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. They were amazed, there's that word again, amazed at his teachings. They were struck because they hadn't heard the kingdom of God talked about this way. See, Jesus was doing something common that rabbis did. When the rabbis would stand up to teach, they would say, you have heard it said, because the job of the rabbi or the, or the, um, uh, the people that taught the law was to take the Torah, the, the, the books of Moses, and to interpret them and nuance them in their own ways. And they each had their own way of doing that. So when they would stand up to teach, they would say, you've heard it said, but I tell you, and they would nuance their, their, uh, this law. They had never heard the law of God, the belief of God, the doctrines of God, nuanced, not nuanced, turned on their head the way that Jesus was. They were amazed. It's kind of like driving through Southern California. You and I do it every day. You're going to do it as you go back home. And as you drive through Southern California, you'll notice the homes through the neighborhood, right? We have beautiful homes, but they're all in a shade of tan. They've got nice tan here, right? Maybe a little off-white. You drive past another home, eh, brown. It's, it's beautiful, but it's brown. 
You drive a little bit longer and you'll see another home and, oh, it's a shade of gray. Watch out. Getting creative. And you, and you keep going and this, this pattern seems to be, be uh, the next home you come to, you know, it's, it's, it's brown. And you start to see it, but it, it all starts to sound the same. I was riding my bike. I love to ride my bike. And I was going through Redlands up at Sunset Drive. You know, Sunset, beautiful up there. Um, going through Sunset, passing brown house after brown house after brown house. Came around the corner, and I almost fell off my bike. Uh, I, I had to stop right there. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Bright, fuchsia, pink. You can't see it too well up there, but it was, oh, it was it's. And if you look closely, there's aqua blue trim around it. And on the chimney, there are actually wave patterns with two fish up on the chimney. It's straight from the Bahamas. And I was like, oh, yeah. And I imagine as the people listen to Jesus talk and teach, wow, I have never heard of anything like this before. I have never heard of God in this light or seen God in this light as this man is, is uh, teaching. In essence, Jesus turns everything on its head. Redemption, redemption does not come through violence, through power, through domination. Redemption comes through grace and through forgiveness. Nowhere is this clearer in the life of Jesus, this teaching, than when he goes to the cross. He's stripped, he's beaten. He's hanging naked. Now, so many of us have, have, when we think of the cross, we have um, very nice, warm, fuzzy, personal feelings about it, and, and that's good, and we should, because it is a very personal experience, the personal salvation that Jesus is offering each one of us. But I believe the message of the cross and the event of the cross has a lot bigger purpose than individual salvation. I believe God is saying through the cross, Jesus is confronting the dominant ideology of our broken world. That redemption comes through force and strength and violence. God, through the cross, is confronting that ideology. I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew, the 26th chapter. The context of this, um, these few verses are um, Jesus is uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And Judas has just arrived um, and uh, has kissed him Start with verse 50, 26 verse 50. Jesus replies to Judas, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We give Peter a hard time, but I don't know. If it was my family they were coming after, if I had a sword on my belt, you protect your own, don't you? You protect your own. And Peter does what naturally we do. Verse 52, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword 
will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus is saying, don't you think, guys, that I could play by the rules of the world? Don't you think that if I wanted to, I could put together an army and it would be awesome? Don't you think? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that, it say, that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? In essence, he's making them look ridiculous. What? I've been with you the whole time, and you're coming out now with swords? You know I... What's going on? Every day I sat in your temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. God confronts, turns on its head the idea that good can come from violence, from power. Our whole theology, our whole belief is based on this God, this idea of a God who comes, the God who comes and who brings redemption, and he brings it through forgiveness and through grace. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. And you know when it gets personal, where it gets personal is what you and I choose. And, and Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, his last words, you know his last words, right? Father, forgive them. And in his last breath, Jesus is breathing out forgiveness over the world. He breathes out forgiveness over the world. The world is forgiven. It's a powerful image, isn't it? The world is forgiven. And when it gets personal is when you and I choose to accept this forgiveness, this grace, this gift. We are choosing, when we choose that, we are choosing to live counterintuitively to the ways and means of the world and the culture around us. We're joining with God and making his statement that violence can never be redemptive, that revenge can never heal wounds, that hatred only destroys the one who hates. And when we choose the forgiveness of God, we choose to practice forgiveness. I realize that some about right about now that some of us start to tune out. We've heard forgiveness and perhaps we've heard about forgiveness too much. Perhaps we've heard about it in the wrong kind of ways. I was actually talking with a woman who I greatly respect just this last week and we were talking about something totally different. Um, she was telling me, actually she's sharing a little bit of her story, her, her uh, experience of going through some, some abuse as a child and um, t- started talking about the difficulty that she's had forgiving um, her father. Um, and uh, she, she made a comment. I don't remember the exact words. She made the comment, you know, I would probably be okay if I never heard another sermon on forgiveness. And I smiled and I said, tell me more about that. Because I have to preach the Sabbath and I'm preaching on forgiveness. 
And she said, you know, I, I guess it's because, and, and again, I don't know her exact words, but the idea was, I guess, I guess what I'm saying, she said, is that forgiveness is difficult, it's complex, it's messy, and, and it angers me when I hear preachers stand up and say, you just need to forgive. It's simple. God has commanded you to forgive, so forgive, period. She says, it just doesn't work that way. And I said, you know, I think I agree with you. I think I agree with you. I, um, I imagine all of us, well, I know all of us here are in some kind of relationship in our lives. Some kind. Whether it's with a spouse, with children, with parents, with coworkers, with church community. We're in relationship. And you know in relationship, um, things don't always happen the way they should or we don't always treat each other the way that we are supposed to. And things happen and words get said and actions, I, I, uh, I had an experience just two weeks ago um, teaching my daughter how to ride a bicycle and we were at the park and my little daughter Sarah and she got so frustrated because she couldn't ride her bike and, and uh, we were teaching and, and uh, so she just sat down and, on her bike and, all right, Sarah, I'm going. If you want to ride your bike, you can come with me. What? Kind of, what, what kind of words are that? You know, <laughs> I was getting frustrated. Come on, just do it. And and so eventually we got home and and uh, I had to I had to get ready to go to another appointment. And um, she comes running out, running out to the car, and she gives me a note. She hands me a note, and uh, you know I take the note and I go, oh Sarah, what's this? I read it. Dear Dad, I'm. Sorry for being grumpy at the park today. I love you, Sarah. I, I don't know. I, all of us, in some form or another, need forgiveness at one time or another. Forgiveness is an essential part of what it means to be human because we all make mistakes. And yet it's difficult sometimes, depending on the woundedness that we feel, the pain that we experience, what's happened in our lives. And so I don't just want to skim over and say, you know what, God's telling you to forgive, so you, because he's forgiven, you need to forgive, and if you don't, well, psh, he's not going to accept you. Or, no, forgiveness is a lot more messy than that. It's a lot more complicated, a lot more difficult. I want to talk a little bit about practical things about forgiveness for just a few moments some practical things that I've learned and, and I'm still learning about forgiveness that hopefully will be helpful in your journey. The first thing that I've, I've, I'm learning is that forgiveness is a personal, inner, emotional release. It is first and foremost about what's happening in me. It is not for the other person. I know that may sound strange, but forgiveness is first and foremost for what's happening in me. Because the human soul, when it's injured, was not designed or created to store up hatred and anger that results from pain. It's not designed that way. We tend to break down. And you notice this all around. Physically, emotionally, depression, anxiety. We tend to break down when, when things are harbored and stored up. 
Forgiveness at the most basic level is about simply letting go. Letting go of the need to get revenge. Letting go of the need to hurt in response to being hurt. Letting go of the hatred and anger that accompanies pain and woundedness. Forgiveness is about what's happening inside of me. But we often get mixed up because we associate so many times forgiveness and reconciliation and think that the two are one thing. You know, ideally, I I think God desires them to go together. But I, I think practically, they don't oftentimes. Because there may be an experience where I am able to forgive and to release and let go of the anger and pain, but I cannot reconcile with the person who has wounded me for the simple reason that in reconciling with that person, it would enable the pain and the woundedness to continue. Do you get what I'm saying? It would enable the abuse, the cycle, the violence to continue. Reconciliation is contingent upon both parties being willing to see what they have done to a situation and to change. So forgiveness and reconciliation, I want you to make that clear distinction in your minds. They don't always go together. I believe ideally God wants to reconcile. Isn't there text in, in Paul says, God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God desires to reconcile, but he realizes that some people just won't. So forgiveness is about letting go. It's about what's going on inside of me. Second thing is forgiveness is about telling the truth. I think a lot of times we... We hold in the anger and the hatred because we haven't allowed ourselves to really tell the truth about what happened. We don't tell it to anybody. Some of us are really good at keeping secrets, keeping our woundedness to ourselves. I want to make really clear that forgiveness is in no way denying the pain, in excusing or minimizing the action, in saying it's okay, that it's not a big deal. I think people are most often stuck at this point because they think, if I forgive that person, it's in essence saying it's no big deal what they've done to me. It really doesn't matter. They can can get off scotch-free. There's no... It's excusing them, in a sense. And, And in reality, forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is exactly the opposite. Forgiveness is being willing to speak the truth about what happened. It's being willing to speak honestly and openly. Maybe not directly to the person you've, who's, who's harmed you, because oftentimes that doesn't do any good. But it's speaking it to the people around you. It's finding people who are safe that you can share your story with. I don't know if you've had a chance, but on your way in, you may have seen some pictures and some, some little stories hanging up in the, in the breezeway there. Um, there's, a, there's a beautiful website that's been created. It's called theforgivenessproject.com, www.theforgivenessproject.com. And it's a website that's been created simply to allow people to share their stories in their struggle through this thing called forgiveness. Unbelievable things have happened in their lives, and yet these are people that are choosing to practice forgiveness or at least struggling with the idea of forgiveness. 
So I, I invite you to take a few moments on your way out today to um, contemplate some of those stories, or if you have a chance, go online and uh, check it out. But these are people that have learned the value of sharing their stories. Because something happens when we share our stories of woundedness and pain and struggles with forgiveness in that we begin to heal ourselves. I want to go through a, a really quick couple of things that forgiveness is not. Make this really clear. Forgiveness is not pardon. Forgiveness is not pardon. Pardon comes from an authority saying, okay, I pardon you. That's not your job. That's not your role. Sometimes there are natural consequences. Sometimes there are legal consequences to an action that will not or should not change with a decision to forgive. Remember, the decision to forgive is about what's going on inside of me. It's not letting someone else off the hook. Forgiveness, the second thing, is not condoning. It does not mean that you have to accept or support behaviors that are harmful or destructive. It often means that you take action to, to change a situation or to protect yourselves or others. And it means you take actions towards justice. Not vindictive, you'll get what you deserve kind of justice, but a restorative justice. And I don't know if you've uh, heard a lot about restorative justice. Stay tuned, come back March 17. Pastor Chris will be talking a little bit more about that with our Adventist roots, what it means to be involved in social justice, restorative justice. Um, it's a beautiful concept. Forgiveness is not condoning what's happened. Um, the, uh, the third, the third um, observation about forgiveness is that it's a process. That's why we chose the title for today's sermon that we did, The Practicing Forgiveness. It's a practice. Those of you who are in the medical field um, understand the word practice. That's what you call it, right? You're practicing medicine. Sometimes you don't get it right. Sometimes you don't do it as well as maybe um, looking back on it, you, you should have. It's a practice. I don't know, I, Pastor Chris's etudes, I hated those things. But it's a practice. My mom put up with it for eight years. Bless her soul. It's a practice. Forgiveness is a process. We don't do it perfectly. We don't do it well. There are times in our lives when, when things happen and the pain is too deep that we say, like, like the woman I talked with, I, I don't even feel like forgiving. There's nothing inside of me that wants to forgive. Nothing. I don't think I even can forgive. And yet somehow in the midst of that honesty, there is power. There is a, a willingness to be open to the possibility that forgiveness could happen. But I just don't know how looking at myself. Forgiveness is a process. You saw the text at the very beginning uh, for the video, right? Peter comes to Jesus how many times? Lord, seven? No. Jesus says 70 times seven. And I don't know, that's confusing a lot, right? Because if someone comes up and hits me three times, I'm going to turn around and deck them. I, I don't know, I, I feel that way. I don't think he's talking about that. I don't think he's talking about that. I think Jesus is emphasizing that forgiveness takes time. It takes time. Sometimes you have to wake up every morning and say, all right, I don't feel like it, but today I am choosing again to forgive this person. And you start to feel the anger and the hatred well up, and today I am choosing to, I'm choosing to let it go. 
And sometimes it takes the course of a whole lifetime practicing forgiveness. We don't do it perfectly, but we put ourselves in a place to do it. And finally, the idea that forgiveness is a gift. It's not something I can manufacture or summon up. Yes, it's me who makes a choice. It's I who makes the choice to forgive. But the actual process of forgiving, the ability to let go of that anger, to let go of the hatred, let go of the desires for retribution or to take revenge, to be able to let go of those things is a gift. It's a gift from God. And this is where the practice of forgiveness connects with abiding in the vine. Abide in me and I will abide in you because apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot truly forgive. But connected to me, only through that connection with me will you be able to find release. Abiding in the vine means simply and frequently to put yourself in a place where God can speak and work transformation in your heart and in your mind. You might remember this quote from last week from, from our friend Mrs. White. When every other voice is hushed and in the quietness we wait before him, the silence of the soul makes more distinct the voice of God. The silence of the soul makes more distinct the voice of God. And it's often in moments of stillness with God and silence with God that we become of the ways, become aware of the ways and the areas where we need to practice forgiveness. And it's as we practice forgiveness that we become more aware of the presence of God, the presence of divinity in those moments. I'd like to end with a story, a story that I found on this website that I told you about. A story of Marion Partington. In 1973, uh, Marion's younger sister, Lucy, disappeared from a bus stop after visiting a friend. 20 years later, 20 years later, the gruesome discoveries at 25 Cromwell Road revealed that Lucy Partington had been one of Frederick West's victims. It's her telling her story. As soon as the news came through that Lucy's body had been found, I vowed to try and bring something positive out of this meaningless trauma. But first, I had to face the truth. And she goes on and describes what happened to her sister. I'm going to spare you those details. For a, for a year, for a year after the finding, her remains were needed as an exhibit for the defense. After this, I felt an instinctive need to go to the mortuary in Cardiff to hold and wrap her bones. During that moving ceremony, something shifted, and I made a step towards peace. In that same year, I also began to go on some Buddhist retreats. It was at one of these that I made a vow to try and forgive the Wests. It seems like we have a lot to learn from other, other religions, maybe about forgiveness. It seems that the most liberating, positive way forward was to try to forgive. This was uncharted territory for me, but I've always believed there is something good in everyone. 
When I came home from the retreat, I had an overwhelming, involuntary, and profoundly physical experience of murderous rage. It went whoosh, all the way up from my belly to my skull. I wanted to scream, to pull out my hair, to claw at the ground. So for me, forgiveness began with rage. Until then, I hadn't thought of myself as a murderous person. But at that moment, I was capable of killing. In other words, I was not separate from the West. At the committal trial, when I saw Rosemary West sitting there, it was almost impossible to match her expressionless face with the endless graphic details of sexual depravities and brutality. But then I heard her voice on tape. She was shouting, swearing, and full of rage. And I began to have some insight into her mind. I later discovered that she'd been sexually abused by her brother and then abducted from a bus stop and raped at 17 years of age. Her story seems to be about the impoverishment of a soul that knew no other way to live than through terrible cruelty, a life deprived of truth, beauty, or love. I imagine that the deviant ignorance that fed her sadistic, egotistical crimes was rooted in her ruined, crooked childhood. Will she ever know the sacredness of life? During my recent work in Bristol, in a Bristol prison, on a project about restorative justice, I have come to know that most perpetrators have been victims of abuse in their childhood. My work has been about connecting with Rosemary West's humanity and refusing to go down the far easier and more predictable path of demonizing her. I take every opportunity to talk about her as a human being. I once met another mother whose daughter had been murdered. She gave me a phrase that I now have pinned to my door. Forgiveness means giving up all hope of a better past. Gradually, I have come to face, accept, and integrate the unresolved pain of the past. I have imagined something of Rosemary West's suffering, something of Lucy's suffering, and I do not wish Rosemary West more pain. Working towards forgiveness seems to be the most imaginative way of becoming free and offering freedom. It's only something you can line yourself up for. You can't make it happen. But I know it's the only creative way forward because it allows me to try to find a positive relationship with my own suffering, which can be beneficial to others. In this way, I can use my life to transform the cycle of violence. Sometimes I experience the sacredness of my own life and the interconnectedness of all our lives. And in this place, forgiveness is spontaneous. Sometimes it's more difficult. Some people have asked me whether I feel I'm betraying Lucy for doing this, and I say, no, absolutely the opposite. I feel I'm honoring Lucy by lining myself up for forgiveness.
Dear God, we look up to you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We realize we're stuck in this together, all of us. And we realize that you're going to help us navigate this. You're going to give us the courage to be able to let go. You're going to be able to give us the courage to see the humanity in each other. You're going to give us the love. The love that heals our woundedness that binds up our brokenness and that gives us the ability to reach out and love someone else. God, to you we give thanks. Jesus, to you we thank you. We say thank you. Holy Spirit, to you we say come. Amen.